Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of our Revelation Questions podcast. This is week one, coming off the first lesson of Revelation, that great intro vision, the uh, revelation of Jesus, which is uh, right. a stunning vision that John sees and opens the, the book with. What we what we want to talk about today are some of these extra questions that you weren't able to get to in the lesson. So give us a give us a 30 second setup on where we are and then we'll kick off these questions. Well, in our introduction and as we dove into chapter one, we really spent most of our time looking at what is the apocalypse or the revelation? What is this book? And we looked at the point of view of what kind of literature is it? I mean, why is it so weird compared to the other books? But we spent a lot of time on the interpretive approaches. And we talked about the four main ways people approach this book. How would you approach interpreting it? Because we don't have a lot of trouble interpreting a gospel. It's a narrative. You read it. And we don't have a lot of trouble reading the Psalms. It's poetry, and you read it, and you know what it is. But we're not so familiar with the book like Revelation. How should we approach this? Well, I thought that was a, a great framework that's going to be useful through the whole series that you're doing. Uh, but in covering those things, we've got a couple of questions that are more specific to the text. The, the first one you could ask, not just in the book of Revelation, but in any part of the New Testament that is apocalyptic. And that is, did the early church think that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime? Or another way to put this would be, did do the early church writings, the New Testament writings, maintain that Jesus was coming back in the first century? What would you say to that? That is a great question. And of course, it arises from this text. So in Revelation beginning right up front, chapter 1, verse 1, says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then in verse 3, you see something really similar. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, who obey what's written in it, for the time is near. So those two Greek words, the word that's translated soon and the phrase that's translated the time is near, there's uh, quite a bit of discussion around does that mean near in time? In other words, would this naturally have led the hearers to think that these things that are spelled out in the rest of this book, including the second coming of Christ, is that going to happen soon in time? Well, it didn't happen soon in time by our standards from a human point of view. And so if that is the case, then what else could that mean? In other words, just the fact that the early church heard it that way doesn't mean that's what it, what it meant. It just meant that's the most natural way to hear it. So I'll give you an example of how commentators have looked at this, and it gets a little technical in the Greek text and the Greek words and how they're typically used. But one way to look at it is to look at these words in a more temporal uh, nearness kind of of a blend between geography and time. And what do I mean by this is that the kingdom of God is here but it's not completely here. In other words, Jesus has come. Jesus has inaugurated the events of the end time. For example, Beal 
uh, looks at it this way, Alford looks at it this way, and they understand that word then to mean, in the light of history, they would understand that to mean that the events in the book of Revelation have begun, that we are living in the end times. They would see it as all the times between the first and second coming of Christ have inaugurated, quote, the end times. So that's taking the word in a little different sense than is the natural sense of the word, which would be temporal, soon meaning pretty quickly. One of the views we talked about, the preterist view, basically, I'm going to paint with a broad brush, basically understands the book of Revelation, these events talking about the fall of Jerusalem, most of the time, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. If that indeed is the way to understand it, then these words make sense because the fall of Jerusalem did indeed happen shortly after the book of Revelation was written, if you look at it from a preterist view. And so the, one of the advantages of the preterist view is it takes those words in their natural sense. Of course, the preterist view has some challenges as well, and the other views make a lot of sense, but they do have to deal with what do these words then mean if they don't mean Jesus is coming in the next couple of years? So that's kind of the essential difficulty that people wrestle with around this. I think the answer to that personally is that the first century hearers would very naturally have thought that that meant Jesus was coming soon in time, maybe even in their lifetime. Now, the fact that that didn't happen doesn't mean the scripture's wrong. It means the people were wrong, and that's happened all through history. We know that the people were expecting a Messiah who was a conquering king. Well, the Messiah did indeed come, but he didn't come as a conquering king. He will, but he didn't at that time. So the fact that people might have expected that to be soon in time, and it wasn't, is actually not a problem for me with the text whatsoever. In fact, Cole, I'll give you see what you think about this, but I was thinking about how might we understand this in a way that makes sense to us. So I was thinking, uh, watching a video, I think, on World War II and D-Day in World War II, and you know how the Allies invaded France. And, and I thought to myself, if you were one of the paratroopers that were dropped into occupied France— because they dropped all kinds of paratroopers in ahead of time to go blow up rail, uh, railroads and, and go do some things behind the enemy lines. Very dangerous job. So you parachute these guys in, and they get to the ground, and they take off their parachutes, and they're getting ready to go. And the commanding officer says, all right, I want everybody to be ready, because we are going to be in contact with the enemy soon. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And But what does that really mean? I mean, is it going to be this afternoon? Is it going to be a week from now? Here's what we would take from that. We would say, I don't know exactly when it's going to be, but it's absolutely inevitable that we will come in contact with the enemy. And I wonder if this is not being used in a similar way, because we have been parachuted, if you want to think about it that way, into enemy territory. We Christians are invading the kingdom of Satan in the world. And so it would make sense to me to say, you're going to see contact with the enemy soon. And I don't know if that's going to be tomorrow in my life, but I do know at some point in my life, 
I will make contact with the enemy. Now, that's not a particularly scientific or academic way to look at it, but that kind of analogy helps me to think that in God's time frame, maybe he's telling each one of us in every generation, you're going to make contact with the enemy and the things in the book of Revelation are going to happen to you. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but I think that's a helpful way for me to think about the way the scripture might be talking about this. Yeah, that's a great answer and puts it in the different way of thinking about it, not just temporally, but the imminence of what's happening in this book. That question has obviously endured. We have all kinds of predictions throughout Christian history as to when the things in that book are going to happen. Every generation thinking it's going to be in their own generation usually. Now, the second question we got is specific, and I think we're going to get a lot of questions like this. Uh, because sometimes in a lesson, you don't have the chance to go into every single symbol, every single interpretive question. This is a big one uh, that somebody asked, who are the angels in the, to the seven churches? So this is at, right at the end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two, the angels that are being addressed. There's a lot of debate about who these are. Who, what do you think? That is another great question. It's a trickier question than you might think. Obviously, the uh, vision that you see right at the end of chapter one is you see Jesus uh, with seven stars in his hands walking amongst the lampstands. And Jesus interprets this vision for us. He said the lampstands are the seven churches and the stars are the angels of the seven churches. Well, if you just stop there, you could say, well, maybe each church has a guardian angel, if you think about it uh, that way. Uh, Or maybe the angels of the churches are like the bishop or the preacher in a megachurch, or maybe it's the lead elder of the church. In other words, the word angel doesn't have to mean supernatural being. It can just mean a messenger. It could be the one who represents that church. But the thing that that really makes me think that's less likely is once you get into the letters, it says to the angel of the church in, and now fill in the blank, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this. And so you'd say, well, that could be uh, a representative. The problem with that for me is that from then on, it's it's singular. In other words, when it says you, I know your works, it's not plural, it's singular. And so what does that mean? That's really difficult. On the one hand, it doesn't sound like he's talking to all the people in the church because it's not plural. But you can't just be talking about the bishop's works. He's clearly talking about the whole church. And so this is a little bit puzzling because he speaks as though he's speaking to one person, but he's actually talking about the deeds of the whole church. And so the way I reconcile that in my mind is I tend to look at it on on its plain sense. These letters apparently are to the churches, including all of the members of the churches, that everyone's being encompassed in this. You know, your, even though it's singular, your works is not one person's works, it's the works of the church. So I think that we may think about this in this way. I think Christ apparently thinks of the body of believers. The ecclesia uh, is the Greek word for that, the collection, the gathering of the church as an entity. I know sometimes we think of the church as being made up of, of individual people. 
But I think when Jesus is speaking to these churches, he sees us as a big family. So, for example, it wouldn't be unusual for me to write a letter to a family and say, you have done awesome things this year. Well, who? Well, everybody in that family did awesome things this year. But I might just say you, singular, you as a family. And so, again, that's not particularly academic, but it reads like he's talking to everybody in the church but he addresses it singularly. And from that, I infer that Jesus looks at us as a body of believers as one family, indistinguishable from each other. That's a great way of looking at that because it encompasses both of the things that you're really holding in tension in that passage. One, that Jesus is speaking directly to the churches. And then secondly, that he's using a singular you. We don't we don't make the distinction in English between a singular and a plural you unless we say y'all uh, like we do here in <laughs> Oklahoma. But uh, in the Greek, you can tell. You can tell if it's a singular or a plural, but sometimes it's a singular collective. Uh, right. You as in a group of people. Now, here's a third question. We didn't get this from uh, anybody writing in, but I, I thought this would be an interesting question to ask. The, the nature of a series like this is obviously building on series that you've done before in Revelation. You're coming to the text with a fresh uh, look for each different series, but there's also a tremendous amount of research and resources that you're going through preparing for a series like this. What are some of your top resources? What does the week of research look like to teach the book of Revelations, especially to teach it from multiple perspectives? That's a great question. Having taught it before, I have read a number of commentaries, and there are Probably, I'll probably publish a bibliography with this series. And so there are a number of really strong, academically strong commentaries, but I have read them before. So I will revisit some of them, but I always add to the mix. I'll tell you one that I think is very accessible to people is Steve Gregg, G-R-E-G-G, did a commentary on Revelation. It's a great piece of work. It's not terribly uh, scholarly, but it's very detailed, and it's called Four Views on the Book of Revelation. He takes the four major views, and as you get into the passages, he'll actually have a column for each one and kind of give you a little different flavor. Now, that's not sufficient for me. I mean, I, that's not all I want to bring to this, but that's a very accessible commentary, and it's a little older, and I've read it several times. For this series, I start reading ahead of time in on these areas, and so in addition to the core commentaries that I use, Peter Lightheart put out a two-volume commentary on Revelation that I read last year and thought, okay, I'm, I marked it up highlighted it, uh, brought a few key ideas out of it. He has an interesting perspective. He's a little bit of a preterist with a blend of, of some other things on top of it. And I'll talk about that in the series because more and more people are, are taking that view. That view is growing a little bit. So Lightheart did a great two-volume study of that. And then I wanted to look at the preterist position a little bit more. The futurist position is very popular. It's easy to teach that. Historicist position is not very popular, and so I don't spend a ton of time on it, except to point out that the reformers like Luther and Calvin, that was their view in that era. 
And then the symbolic view is, I think, gaining in prominence. So when I do additional reading, I read on the ones that are probably gaining in prominence so we can talk through those a little bit better. Great. Well, I'm I'm excited to see the questions that people send in, uh, both during the lessons and outside of it that we can answer will be coming again after you do your next lesson with a few more questions. And so send those in. You can either text those in during the lessons or you can send it into info at sowespeak.com. And uh, we'll just spend our Fridays in the book of Revelation for this spring. Get ready for the apocalypse. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.